This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Reign's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. East Knapp Street on the Lower East Side of Milwaukee is a hodgepodge of apartments and office blocks. An uneven skyline like an unfinished game of Tetris. A man picks his way along the sidewalk. It's 2008. There's a stoop to his gait, as if he's wearing a weighted vest. He takes care on the icy streets, dirty piles of slush dotting the ground. Snow hangs from roofs, precariously perched like a booby trap waiting to be triggered. He has made the exact same journey every month for over a decade. Today is different though. Today is about absolution. A single room office he enters is cozy, a marked difference from the approach of winter outside. Victoria Fetter greets her patient, settling into her usual seat opposite him. He is one of her longest tenured clients and one of her most complex. Vernon Seitz is a 62-year-old barber by trade and has held the same midday appointment every fourth Saturday for 11 years. When he starts talking, it's a familiar tale, one he has shared with her before, this part at least. He tells her of his 12-year-old self on the cusp of his teenage years, a family visit to the zoo that ends in tragedy. Instead of marveling at the animals, Vernon is snatched by several strange men, beaten and made to do unspeakable things before being returned to his family later that evening. This is where the story usually ends. Not today though. Today he slots home the final piece of the puzzle one that has shaped his life from that day at the zoo forward, over and above any trauma he has already shared. He tells Fetter that not only did they do things to him, but that they made him do something in return. He was not the only boy taken that day. There was another, several years older than Vernon, and they gave Sights an unthinkable choice. Kill or be killed. Only one boy went home that day, a secret that Seitz has carried for years, one that he needs to unburden himself of. He asks Fetter to help him tell his story to the police. She agrees, but what neither of them could know is that Seitz will not be around to tell it to them firsthand. By the time the police come around to his house, Seitz will be dead on his bed, waiting to be discovered. More disturbing even than his body and his confession, is what they find in his bedroom in his basement. Materials that link him to not one, but multiple missing children, and not ones who vanished a lifetime ago, back when Seitz claims he was abducted. No, what they find are links to open missing persons cases from far more recent than that. The story unfolding in Vernon Seitz's house is so much more than the one he shared with his psychiatrist. And in the days and weeks that follow, Authorities will need to open up old cases and old wounds, if they are to stand a chance of deciphering the answering of one question. If Vernon Seitz had killed that boy back in the 1950s, what else had that made him capable of?
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even top government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Vernon Seitz, of the words he spoke in the days before he died, a confession that plunges us 50 years into the past, about how he claimed to be equal parts victim and perpetrator, what he was forced to do to survive, how his confession posed more questions than it answered, and the disturbing discoveries police made in his basement after he died. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Vernon Charles Seitz is born October 8, 1946, to Raymond and Mildred Seitz. He graduates Horlick High School in 1964 and receives an associate's degree in barbering from Milwaukee Area Technical College. He works his whole life as a barber, eventually owning his own shop on Packard Avenue in his hometown of Racine. Outwardly, he's described as friendly by some, a little eccentric by others. He speaks quite openly of a gift he believes he has, psychic powers that allow him to help others, families and victims of the same abuse he says he was subjected to as a young boy. For the last decade of his life, he attends regular psychiatric counseling, although it's unclear exactly what the catalyst is for him seeking out these sessions. It's at one of these sessions in November 2008 that he shares his darkest secret with his psychiatrist, Victoria Fetter. It's unclear as to what prompted Seitz to share this revelation with Fetter at this particular time. He won't live long enough to be questioned by police, but it's not clear whether Seitz knew he didn't have much time left. Was this what drove his need to confess? Or was it the sheer weight of five decades of pressure bearing down on him that forced the words out? Regardless of what led to Seitz's confessions, they were enough to trouble Fetter. After a session in November 2008, Seitz asked Fetter to help him set up a meeting with Racine police. She contacts them, sharing what little detail Vernon has furnished her with. They carry out cursory checks into old records, but turn up nothing that confirms Seitz's story. 
For now, it stops here. The delay means that police will never get a chance to speak to Vernon in person. In his final weeks, neighbors notice stark changes in Vernon. He is constantly agitated and seems to have lost all interest in his own appearance, looking unkempt and unshaven. His mood swings were clear for all to see. One neighbor shares that in one breath he is kind, thoughtful, saying God bless you dozens of times per day. Then, a switch seems to flip, and he becomes angry and agitated, enough to frighten one neighbor who asked to remain anonymous. She says she feels sorry for him, believing something very bad happened to him, that he felt he was cursed in a way. They relay one incident where Vernon was doing some work in his yard and became belligerent with another neighbor. He was heard to shout, this is my house, my yard. I'm just gonna go on this tree outside like a dog. Vernon is known to be on heavy medication, an antipsychotic, trazodone to sleep, and other pills to help wake up. On Saturday, 10th of December, 2008, a friend of Vernon's, known only as Steve, goes to his house. There's no answer, and Steve assumes Vernon is either out or inside taking a nap. Five days later, Milwaukee police receive a call from an unnamed friend, asking them to send a car around to carry out a wellness check. Nobody has seen or heard from Vernon in over a week. Officers responding to these calls have seen it all before. Some visits are false alarms. Others discover those who have slipped away unnoticed, dying in the familiar surroundings of their home. They'll soon realize though, that finding sites himself will be just the start of what will become a very long day one that'll stick in their memories for years to come. Seitz's house has seen better days, inside and out. When the two officers arrive, they're greeted by a patchwork facade. More windows are boarded up than remain intact. A hand-printed sign in faded ink on the front door reads, you have just been photographed by an infrared camera. Photos go to police since recent robbery invasion. Call first before coming here. They crunch up snow-covered steps to the front porch, noting the absence of footprints. Doesn't seem that anyone has been in or out since the most recent flurry. The first officer knocks and they wait, listening for footsteps, the click of a latch being opened. Nothing. They knock again, but the result is the same. Nobody has seen Vernon Sites for over a week. The concerned friend who called them also shared that Sites isn't in good health. In circumstances like this, they don't take silence for an answer. And calling out his name one last time, they break down the door and enter the property. They continue to call out as they move from room to room. It's not a big property, so it isn't long before they've searched all but one room. There's a taint of something foul to the air as they step inside, one they're familiar with, one that doesn't speak of happy endings. Sites is lying on his bed, and it's immediately obvious that no paramedics are going to be needed today. He's been dead for at least a few days by the looks of it. But his body isn't the only thing they see. Beside him are the first of over 500 items that will be taken into evidence. Among these are numerous examples of child abuse material, paintings of young boys, and a book on cannibalism called Eat Thy Neighbor. As if these aren't bad enough, they also find flyers and news articles about children that have gone missing from neighboring communities. Is this chilling discovery a signpost 
signaling that Seitz's earlier confession was just the starting point? Or could it just be an unhealthy obsession behind closed doors? The officer notifies dispatch of their find, asking for a coroner, while the other paces slowly around the bed, taking in the haphazard piles of images and flyers, Seitz's morbid mementos. According to the neighbor, Seitz lives alone. But what they've seen in the few short minutes since they entered has draped an uneasy sense of dread over them like a cloak. There's one last door to check. It leads to the basement. Wooden stairs groan as they make their way down, flashlights slicing across the gloom, until one of them finds a switch. He flicks it on, bathing the small space in light. And for the second time in as many minutes, they're stunned by what they see. Bondage equipment dangles from the ceiling like warped wind chimes. A set of handcuffs similar to their own lies on a nearby bench. Yet more sketches and drawings of young boys, like Seitz's own private gallery. Not just still images down here though. Towers of VHS videotapes to one side, like shaky skyscrapers. The toe of a shoe pokes out from underneath a pile of paper, and one of the officers reaches for it, wincing at what it could mean when he realizes it's a child's shoe, size two and a half. Seitz has no children of his own, so the inference is enough to make the officer's stomach drop. Boxes upon boxes of flyers and maps circle scored marking locations. One such map is of St. Joseph, Minnesota, the hometown of Jacob Wetterling, whose face and name also appears on one of the many flyers. One of the officers picks this one up, reading the text pleading for Jacob's safe return. Jacob was only 11 years old when he vanished near his home in St. Joseph. On October 22, 1989, he goes to the store with his brother Trevor and friend Aaron. They are halfway back wheeling their bikes along the side of the road when a masked man emerges from a patch of trees. He has a gun and asks the boys their ages before choosing Jacob. He tells the other two that they'd better run and not to dare looking back or they'll find a bullet heading their way. This is the last time anyone will see Jacob Wetterling alive. The investigation never really gets off the ground. The two traumatized children are not able to describe the gunman with any degree of accuracy. The only physical evidence police recover is a faint tire mark that turns out to be from an unrelated vehicle. They check all known sex offenders in the area for connections, but are left empty-handed. Jacob Wetterling has vanished into thin air. All hope of finding him alive, or otherwise, fades as the years stretch out. That is, until two decades later, when the flyer bearing his name is found in Vernon's bedroom, over 400 miles away. The flyer on the bed, however, is just one of a catalog of items that open up a window into Seitz's mind. Even just a selection of the full inventory suggests police may have stumbled onto something far larger than the alleged crime from the 1950s that sparked Seitz's confession. Amongst other things, investigators find dozens of examples of child abuse material, including VHS tapes. There are numerous sketches, drawings, and paintings of young boys. A set of handcuffs are found in his basement. Seitz has a pair of children's shoes and another single child's shoe, size two and a half. There are maps of various locations with circles drawn on indicating specific locations, 
One such map is of St. Joseph, Minnesota, the hometown of Jacob Wetterling. Jacob becomes a recurring theme, as they also recover a laminated poster of him and a VHS tape with footage of him taken before his kidnapping. Police contact Jacob's parents, Patty and Jerry Wetterling, to tell them of these developments. The response they get from Patty is unexpected, to say the least. She knows Vernon's sights. Let's go back to 1989. It's two weeks since their son disappeared. Patty and Jerry Wetterling feel like they're living in a parallel universe, one they cannot begin to comprehend. There has been no contact from whoever abducted Jacob, so any hint of it being for ransom has long since been discounted. This past fortnight, their lives have been tossed around by a tornado. Streams of questions from investigators. Well-meaning neighbors call with offerings of food and hopeful smiles. Jacob's younger brother, Trevor, tries to wrap his head around why his brother was taken, but he was spared. There's a knock at the door, and Patty rises to answer, trying not to hope too much that it could be good news. The man on her porch is 40-something and dressed casually. Not a police officer. He introduces himself as Vernon Seitz, a barber from Racine, and tells her he is here about Jacob. She invites him in, and he proceeds to tell her that he has a gift, psychic abilities, and that he can help. He shares his personal history with her, his own abduction and abuse that drives him to reach out to families like hers. He comes off as genuine and caring, despite his unusual offer for help. He visits a second time the following week, even bringing Patty a painting he has done of her son. When asked later about these bizarre visits, Patty Wetterling said, he seemed to care and he shared that he had his own personal reason to care. That's really not uncommon for people who came forward to talk to us. We heard that a lot. It wouldn't be the first time an offender has showed up at the scene of their crime. There are plenty of examples of a killer returning to see the aftermath of their actions, to relive the feeling of committing it. Was this what drove Sites to reach out to the Wetterlings under the guise of being a good Samaritan? If he was nothing more than a well-meaning, albeit misguided citizen, what prompted him to reach out? His own whereabouts on the day Jacob disappeared was never established. Was he at home in Milwaukee? Was he merely a man obsessed with missing children? Would such an obsession compel you to drive almost 500 miles to appease your curiosity? Ultimately, Vernon's strange visit didn't help the Wetterling family find their son. Records show that he remained in the area for a couple of weeks after his visit, before returning home, disappearing from their lives as quickly as he had entered. Even though the investigation turned up no solid leads as to Jacob's whereabouts, the Wetterlings show incredible resilience in the face of their own personal tragedy. In January 1990, four months after their son was taken, Patty and Jerry set up the Wetterling Foundation in memory of Jacob. It offers a national database assistance program to help families of missing children. Four years later, Congress passes legislation known as the Wetterling Act. The law requires states to implement a sex offender and crimes against children registry. In 1996, President Bill Clinton signs an executive order creating a national sex offender registry. This act paved the way for the more famous Megan's Law in 1996 and the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act in 2006. While it's all too late to help Jacob Wetterling, 
His parents' passion and drive to ensure no family should endure what they had to has literally changed the law of the land. It's impossible to say how many lives this may have protected or how many children it helped keep safe. The safety of our children is one of any parent's biggest fears. And even with these additional layers of protection, thousands of children are reported missing every year. Estimates around the time of Jacob Wetterling's abduction suggest it's in excess of 100,000. A study by the Justice Department, published in the Washington Post two years after his disappearance, reveals how shockingly short of the mark that guess is. The year Jacob went missing, over 350,000 children were abducted. Most of these returned safely within hours. For the most unfortunate, somewhere between 200 and 300 that year, it's a much longer ordeal, one many will not return from. Of those who never came home, Jacob Wetterling was not the only name found in Seitz's house. In amongst Seitz's possession was another missing poster, this one for four-year-old Michael Dunahy. Michael was four years old when he went missing in 1991 from a park near his home in Victoria, in the Canadian province of British Columbia. Had he and Jacob Wetterling been taken from their families by the same man? Are the answers to both boys' fates buried somewhere deep in the detritus of Vernon Seitz's house? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Grunto Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Hammers it home. Oh, my goodness. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Michael Wayne Dunahy goes missing from a playground at Blanchard Park Elementary School on a Sunday afternoon in 1991. On the day of his disappearance, his parents, Crystal and Bruce, bundle him and Caitlin, his six-month-old sister, into the car and head to a flag football game. Crystal plays for a team, and before the game starts, Michael asks if he can go to the nearby playground, less than 30 yards away. Crystal isn't keen at first, until she spots other families already there with their own kids. She makes a fateful decision. One that means this is the last time she will see her son. Her husband is just minutes behind them, so Crystal tells Michael he can go play. Her final words to him are, don't leave with anybody, just wait here and daddy will come and get you. Bruce Dunahee watches his wife's game for only a few minutes, but that's all it takes. When he turns around to look for Michael, his son is nowhere to be seen. The game is stopped. Around 50 people searching the surrounding area. Police are called. Families at the playground say they never saw Michael actually enter the playground. In a disturbing parallel to the Wetterling case, police ask Crystal Donahue if she recognizes the name Vernon Seitz after his death. When asked if Seitz had ever come forward offering help, 
she can't remember. Not with the same clarity Patty Wetterling had. She does say, however, that the name seems familiar to her. Had Sites reprised his role as Good Samaritan, offering to use his so-called gift to help find her son? Over the years that follow, there are several reported sightings. Some who are said to look like Michael, briefly rekindling the spark of hope for his parents. One by one, though, they are discounted, ruled out by DNA testing. Any hope of solving Michael's disappearance faded until that missing poster bearing his picture turned up in Vernon Seitz's basement and reignited the spark. Alongside posters for Michael Dunahy and Jacob Wetterling, police also find cardboard boxes full of clippings, posters, and photos on other missing persons cases. 20-year-old Sandy Bertolis was last seen at a bowling alley in West Allis, Wisconsin. She had gone there to confront a man she had been dating who had already given her a false address. Her car was found abandoned in the parking lot. 12-year-old Cora Jones disappears in 1994 from Wapaka County, Wisconsin. Her bike was left lying in the street and Cora's body was found five days later. She had died from a single gunshot wound. Serial offender David Spanbauer is eventually convicted of her murder. Five-year-old Melissa Lee Brandon went missing in 1989 from a party at the apartment complex she lived at in Lorton, Virginia. A groundskeeper was later convicted of her abduction and murder, but Melissa's body was never found. Clearly, Vernon Seitz could not have been responsible for some of these cases. But his macabre fascination with missing persons cases, combined with the disturbing paraphernalia that accompanies his case files, suggests a darkness that most of us cannot relate to. Records of the search warrants carried out on his property reveal yet more worrying items. Tufts of human hair, which some speculate could have just come from his barber shop. His business, however, is over 10 miles away. So why bring something like that home if it was just clippings from an honest day's work? The riddle of Vernon's basement is further compounded by the discovery of freshly laid concrete and a number of piles of dirt in the yard, as if he'd been digging something up. This sight fills officers with dread. They bring in jackhammers, carving through concrete, turning his basement into a building site. Despite their worst fears, there's nothing more than soil and rubble. What if sites had dug it up to move bodies, though? A team of cadaver dogs is called in, specially trained to pick up traces of dead bodies. The dogs are let loose in Sites' basement. Noses to the ground, they cover the area inch by painstaking inch. Officers look on nervously, expecting any minute that one of the dogs will stop signaling a find. When the search ends up striking out, officers are equal parts relieved and puzzled. Could Seitz's obsession be rooted in his own abduction that he shared with his psychiatrist, Victoria Fetter? Perhaps this left him with a fascination and a desperate desire to understand the phenomenon of child abduction, to better understand his own trauma. Victoria Fetter has practiced for almost four decades from her one-room office on Astor and Knapp on the Lower East Side of Milwaukee. She treated Seitz for 11 years, Once a month, regular as clockwork, he would arrive for his midday appointment. She remembers him as her most challenging patient. It's unclear exactly when in their decade-long relationship Vernon shares details of his own abduction, but Fetter cites doctor-patient confidentiality rules 
as to why she doesn't attempt to share the information with police before Sites himself asks her to. The bombshell he drops on her drags us 50 years into the past, back to a family trip to the zoo in Racine. On June 19, 1959, Vernon tells Fetter that he was abducted, bundled into a vehicle by several men and blindfolded. They drove him to an undisclosed location where he was beaten and subjected to abuse. He also tells her that they forced him to shoot another captive, a 14-year-old boy. They tell him that if he doesn't do it, he'll suffer the same fate anyway. Vernon complies, shooting the boy, before being forced to watch another boy, the same age as him, being shot by one of their captors. The whole thing lasts seven or eight hours, he tells her. Despite the horrors he says he has witnessed, his captors dump him back at the zoo. Surviving members of his family say they don't recall anything about this incident. Fetter reaches out to Racine police, asking them at her patient's request to look into his 1959 abduction. Searches dredge up no record of the incident, but it's half a century ago. It wouldn't be the first time records were misplaced. Fetter says she tends to believe his claims. In her words, largely because he never contradicted himself, he was always very consistent in his story, which sort of gave it credence. She saw what she feels was a caring side to him, saying that he could have taken a different direction in life to become a social worker or a police detective. But instead, he had what she felt was a delusional notion that he was psychic. This version of Vernon is echoed by his sister-in-law, Susan Seitz. She tells reporters after his death. He was not an abductor. He was a person that counseled families who had children that were abducted, and he helped families find closure. Which version of Vernon is closest to the mark? The account of him that Susan presents is one of a gentle man who loved children. Seitz's neighbors, on the other hand, warned their kids to stay away from his house and yard. It becomes apparent that Vernon has shared at least the abduction part of his own with his sister-in-law at some stage, and she, like Wetter, believes him. After his death, however, Milwaukee police reach out to Racine, yet again coming up empty-handed in an attempt to prove his abduction. Not only can they find no record of such an incident being reported, but they're also unable to locate any cases that could correspond to the boy's sight says died that day. This is not to say that absence of a body means no crime has been committed. As we've already seen in cases like that of Michael Dunahy and Sandy Bertolis, sometimes justice is never done and victims can never truly be laid to rest. After the poster and video footage of Jacob Wetterling is found in Vernon Seitz's basement, the police put him under the microscope. The tape shows a close-up of Jacob. He's reading from notes as part of a school project. He tells us about himself, his favorite food, song, and hobbies. He shares his aspirations of becoming a professional football player. Small details, insights into his life, his dreams, heartbreaking viewing now in light of his disappearance. It's pointed out that the footage of him on VHS could have been taped from the news, the same footage having been used after his disappearance. Police run tests on the many tufts of hair that they recover. None of it can be linked to Jacob or any other ongoing case. All in all, police find no firm link to suggest that Sites had anything other than a bizarre obsession with Jacob's case. Sometimes though, just sometimes, the impossible does happen. In 2015, there is a breakthrough in another case. 
one that police have always suspected was carried out by the same person who took Jacob. Nine months prior to Jacob's disappearance, 12-year-old Jared Shirell was kidnapped and assaulted. DNA evidence now links this case to a man who has previously been interviewed in connection with Jacob's case. Daniel Heinrich lived 23 miles away from Jacob's hometown at the time the young boy was taken. He was spoken to twice by the authorities back then. Once by the FBI, two months after the abduction, then again by police in January 1990. A search of his property at the time turned up photographs of partially dressed young boys. In addition, footprints and tire tracks in a gravel driveway near the abduction site were found to be consistent with Heinrich's shoes and car. Despite this, there wasn't deemed enough evidence to press charges back then. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Heinrich's house is searched in July 2015, and significant amounts of child abuse material are recovered. It's enough to charge him for possessing and receiving it, but the statute of limitations on Jared Shirell's assault has passed. A trial date is set, but before he sees the inside of a courtroom, Heinrich's attorney reaches out to police, saying his client is open to a plea agreement, a deal, information on other offenses he will share. There are two parts to the deal. The first is that Heinrich will plead guilty to both possession of child abuse material and the assault on Shirell. Second, in a stunning revelation, he says he will take them to where he buried the body of Jacob Wetterling. What he asks for in exchange is immunity from prosecution for Jacob's murder. This incredible turn of events comes well and truly out of left field, and police reach out to the Wetterlings. Agreeing will mean that their son's killer never does time for his murder. Agreeing, though, will bring their boy home. Give them closure. Their need to have their son back wins out over vengeance. On August 31st, 2016, 24 hours after they give the agreement their reluctant blessing, Heinrich directs police to a remote location in Stearns County, Minnesota. They find the red jacket that Jacob was wearing on the day he disappeared. Two days later, they locate Jacob's remains. 27 years after that fateful trip to the store, Patty and Jerry Wetterling can finally lay their baby boy to rest. So of the five missing persons whose names were found in Vernon Seitz's house, three now have killers serving times for their crimes. Only Michael Dunahy and Sandy Bertolis have yet to see their cases solved. In early January 2009, three weeks after Vernon Seitz was found dead, Milwaukee Police Department said it had no evidence to suggest he was a factor in the disappearance of any children. Victoria police in charge of the Dunahy case say that after chasing dead ends for almost two decades, they have to be careful in chasing any new leads. 
They check their files again, but find no mention of sites presenting as a psychic or in any other capacity at the time. Menominee Falls Police running the Sandy Bertalis case say that despite cooperating with Milwaukee colleagues, there is no evidence to link sites to Sandy's disappearance. The presence of a map of her hometown and his house proves nothing in itself. People who knew sites say he sometimes used maps to plot his visions of where missing children might be. Bizarre? Yes. Evidence of a crime? No. Equally, a lack of police records dating back 50 years does not mean that his abduction and subsequent confessing of killing a boy in 1959 could not have happened. Lynn Bartholomew, owner of Lynn's Scissory, a hair salon next door to Seitz's barbershop, says she knew him for nine years. She knows of his abduction story and, like Fetter, believes him. She shares that he also claimed to have shot and killed a man who robbed him in his home three years ago, and that he had killed two men in Chicago some years ago, although no detail exists to substantiate either claim. Bartholomew said Seitz had a particular interest in boys that made her and some of her customers uncomfortable. She also said he had a strong interest in Jacob Wetterling and had a laminated poster of Jacob in his barbershop that many had commented on as unusual and strange. In the end, the person with the most insight into the enigma that was Vernon Seitz is still Victoria Fetter. After having in excess of 500 counseling sessions spread over a decade, she says she never felt frightened by him. She says, he told me that although he liked little boys, he knew that you can't touch little boys. So what he did was paint them. It may genuinely be that Seitz was just an odd guy with an overheated imagination and an unhealthy criminal attraction to child abuse material. He has a virtually clean police record and reading books on cannibalism doesn't make him Jeffrey Dahmer. No, says Victoria Fetter when this thought is presented to her. But I suppose you and I wouldn't have that book in the first place. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Julian Altman, a man who on his deathbed confessed to stealing one of the most famous violins in the world, the priceless Huberman Stradivarius. But that wasn't the only skeleton in his closet. Join us for a stranger-than-fiction tale of theft, deception, and greed. Next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Ben Bishop. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kean Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 